Hey kids, welcome back to On Stage, Off Stage. I'm your host, George Sapio. It's well known among those who study classical music that Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart was not the only prodigy in the family. He had a sister, Maria Anna, affectionately known as Nonerl. Nonerl was five years older than her brother, and some Mozart scholars, like our guest this month, playwright and producer Sylvia Milo, and actor Jody Christofferson, postulate that she was at least as talented as Wolfgang Amadeus. Milo's show, The Other Mozart, has been touring the United States and Europe for two years, and now returns to New York City for a three-month run. The play has already won the 2015 New York Innovative Theater Awards for Outstanding Solo Performance and Outstanding Original Music, and was nominated for the 2015 Drama Desk Award nomination for Outstanding Sound Design in a Play, and the 2015 Off-Broadway Alliance Award for Best Solo Performance. So, who was Maria Anna Mozart, and why do we not know more about her? That was the question on Sylvia Milo's mind also, and she created an entire show about it. Happened 10 years ago. Um, it took a while for the whole show <laughs> to happen. Uh, so 10 years ago, I was in Vienna for um, this festival of celebrating Wolfgang's 250th birthday. And um, I was, you know, seeing Vienna for the first time, and I wanted to do it through the eyes of Amadeus, because it's exciting for me to look at uh, a historical figure uh, in a new city I'm visiting. So. So I went to Mozart's uh, apartment, which is now a museum. Um, it's called Mozart House. Um, and there, um, just on the, as I was exiting the museum, really, there was just a small, tiny picture of the Mozart family portrait where Nanro, um, is her nickname, Maria Anna Nanro, uh, she's seated um, in the portrait by the uh, harpsichord with Wolfgang, uh, their hands intertwined, playing playing on the piano together, and um, looking like equals. They're, they're already in their twenties, and she sported this amazing hairstyle that really drew my attention um, uh, first <laughs> to the picture. And underneath it said the Mozart family portrait, and I knew this was not the wife of Mozart, and I assumed that. There must have been a sister, and and I never heard of her before. I grew up as a musician, uh, pianist, and violinist, and I never heard of her existence. So it was quite a shock to me um, that you know such a um, such a such a person, you know, who who later I also found accomplished so accomplished as a as a musician performer. You know, she she toured with Amadeus through all of Europe as two child prodigies. Um, you know, receiving first even first billing above him, and uh, you know, incredible reviews that we don't know about her, and we know so much about Amadeus. Um, you know, there's been so much. His story has been told through so many different angles, especially through the film Amadeus, which which is in. In people's minds still right, which so mentions vivid. nothing about a sister no she's she's not in there at all yeah. um and it, it you know it really um really made me angry that and 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 really questioning why 
uh, we don't know about her. Uh, and it's a fascinating story. The, the true story of Nanro is, is, is a fascinating story. Her whole life is. Um, well, they, t- they toured simple. together, right? And she was older they, than they him? Tour. Yeah. She, she's five years older than him. Um, there were little children uh, touring. I mean, Wolfgang started to play music earlier than she did. Um, her father made her wait till she was eight years old to study piano. But because Wolfgang, who was three years old, saw her sister playing, you know, he kind of fought his way into also learning. Um, and it is, you know, the children really inspired each other uh, to to practice and play and be playful, you know, uh, on the harpsichord. Um, and they toured together. They were the only, they were each other's playmates for many, many years. There they were no other kids around because they, they kept changing cities. Um, and, you know, there was this healthy competition and inspiration and really a play, playful thing uh, that the music was for them. Well, from what, um, I, from so what I, I found, from what I read, it seems like he was extremely supportive of her efforts yeah. and a great lover of her music. Yes. He, you know, the reason we know she composed uh, is because there's a letter from Wolfgang to her praising her composition um, and encouraging her to write more. Now, unfortunately, we don't have that composition. It got lost somewhere. Um, so we can't judge. Um, we have no basis of judging how, how great of a composer she was. But, you know, Wolfgang did praise it highly. And um, it doesn't, didn't, doesn't seem like he would be the kind of person who would um, lie about such a thing. <laughs> well, it's, it's like I said, it seemed like he was extremely supportive. Why do you think... None of her work, I mean, even her compositions have survived. You would think at least somewhere there'd be a a folio of her attempts or her or whatever she might have written. Yes. Well, I think, you know, we don't know what happened either. You know, did she compose very little and, you know, maybe she didn't keep it or did she destroy it or, you know, did the next generation not value it or... Or do we have it? You know, maybe we attribute, maybe we have a couple or one or maybe a few of them that we attribute to Wolfgang. I mean, that, that little exercise in her notebook that now uh, is attributed to her as her composition exercise for a long time was attributed to Wolfgang. So it's possible that we will find it, uh, that maybe we have it, you know, we just don't know that's hers. And this is Jody. Um, there's, a, there's a section in the script where he whistles to Nanal his composition and she writes it all down and she orchestrates it for him. She, she orchestrated his first symphony when they were in London. Um, and so, so he would, you know, he, he was too little to write it down. So she wrote down uh, the, you know, the, the themes, the major themes, but then she actually orchestrated um it for him. So did she uh, so receive know, the same kind of training that he did? It seems like he, she was taught composition at least a little bit uh, by the father because we have that exercise. But it also seems like she wasn't encouraged to, to really pursue it because that composition that she sent to Wolfgang that he praised, uh, the father... Uh, we have all the letters from the father from that period, and he doesn't mention it at all. Um, so it seemed like it was discouraged. It might have been taught to her to become a better pianist, because at the time, pianists 
improvise the cadenzas, especially the endings of pieces. So it was a bit of a composition, um, and she would have needed to know how to do that as a performer. And in the script, um, we talk a lot about how she practices on her own. And there is a letter that survived from the father where he says, to his amazement, she has made such progress. He hadn't heard her play in years. Yeah, and, wow. and he says perfect insight into harmony and uh, modulations and that she extemporizes, she improvises uh, so successfully. successfully you will be astounded. So um, so the father, the father also praises her throughout the letters of her incredible abilities. Well, well, we're all familiar with with Mozart's almost supernatural, you know, ability. He's one of those people who just was absolutely gifted at what he did. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so, was she equally as as gifted? I mean, she's composing. Uh, she's uh, uh, composing his first symphony or arranging, I guess, his first right. symphony. Okay. That's which seems yep. for a woman back in those days to be extraordinary. There's there's a letter that yeah. Leopold, the father, wrote, um, and this question you might not be able to answer because it is a little bit of a, of a sandbagging question, but he wrote, my little girl plays the most difficult works which we have with incredible precision and so excellently. Mm -hmm. What it amounts to is this, that my little girl, although she is only 12, is one of the most skillful mm -hmm. players in Europe. Yeah. Were, were she and... Wolfgang Amadeus of equal talent? I think as a performer, as a pianist, uh, I would, I mean, it seems like she was better, at least at, at first. She was also older, but at first she was billed first um, and she uh, performed more complicated pieces than Wolfgang did. Uh, now, later, Wolfgang studied the violin, which girls were not allowed to study at the time. <laughs> so he he actually, Wolfgang wrote pieces for both of them to play together. So he would write the piano part for her and the violin for himself. And the piano part is much more complicated than the violin part. Why so were women not... Uh, I'm sorry, go ahead, please. <laughs> he always wrote specifically for the actual performer that he, that he was... Uh, that will perform the piece. So he always took into consideration the talents, the abilities of a performer. And he also wrote to Nanro that later on in life, that nobody plays his piano concertos as well as she does, uh, with exactly mm -hmm. this precision and this lightness that she had. Yes, in the script, there is a section where she says, people from Europe would come to judge his compositions by her playing, and they would come, while he was on tour, they would come to Salzburg and she would play and they would go away talking of her talent as well as his composition. genius. His genius. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay, so we know all about Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. We don't know anything about Maria Anna. Why did she stop playing? Why, it's, why did he go on and she just seemed to disappear into history? Well, it seemed to have been really... Uh, economical decision because the family wasn't rich. They were middle class. They were musicians. They were not nobility. Um, and, you know, the father really, I mean, he, the only way, uh, the only person who could get a paying position was Wolfgang. Nanro could not have gotten like a, you know, composer position anywhere or, um, or any kind of, um, you know, actual 
official paying position. So it made sense financially for the family to put all their resources into Vol- promoting Wolfgang's career. So, you know, and at first they traveled, the whole family traveled, the, the father, the mother, and the two children. And it just, it, it was just too expensive to travel, the hotels. You know, Nalor also turned 18, and it would have been not proper for her to display herself in such mm-hmm. a matter as to perform in public for money. She could not earn money as a performer um, because it just wasn't um, in good taste. They could have jeopardized her um, marriage uh, proposals. Uh, and as well as, you know, Wolfgang could have gotten that position somewhere. So the father and the son went alone uh, when Daniel t- turned 18 in pursuit of that position for Wolfgang, which if he would have gotten, the whole family would have joined him in the big city and Nanner could have played in amateur concerts, what were called amateur concerts, you know, which she wouldn't have gotten paid for, but she would have had, you know, a happy artistic life in the big city. But that's not what happened. Unfortunately not. What what, What did happen to her? Did she marry at some point or what was the rest of her life like? Well, she waited till she was 33 years old to marry, which, you know, at the time was really, really late. Right. Yeah. Um, and, it, and I really believe because that the father kept her um, not married because of that dream of the family to go and live in a big city where she could pursue music life uh, in, a, in a different way, the Wolfgang, but still but still do. And, you know, when it became apparent that Wolfgang would just, just cannot get the position, you know, and she's already 33 and the mother already died and um, Leopold's friend died and his daughter in the same situation had to become a a servant. Um, So he panicked and he married her off very quickly um, just, uh, just since his friend's death. So Nanon got married at 33 um, and, you know, went to a tiny little village town with no culture. Um, mm. <laughs> she had, um, you know, a little, you know, they, they put her harpsichord in the smallest room of the house so that nobody even was interested to listen to her play. And, uh, oh my you God, know, what the a waste. Yes, and the instrument even broke in the winter because it was so cold and moist and, you know, it cracked and the strings broke and, you know, I mean, it's... That poor woman, that that, that had to be torture for her. Yes, I think so. I mean, to have that kind of a talent, to have that kind of a love, I guess, for what she's, you know, she's... She does naturally and does so well. It's anybody who plays an instrument or... Yeah, performs or or perfects an, an art form. They live through that. You know, playwright yeah. playwrights live through writing and, and production, and painters live through their canvases and and their and their paints. So, yeah. for her to be forgotten, to to not even be able to play anymore, that's yeah. that's that's terrible. One of the most skillful players in Europe. 
Yeah, and there, you know, there are letters, you know, really we only have the father's replies to her letters, but he's trying to arrange for, you know, a tu tuning person to come in and to fix the harpsichord, but the roads are snowed in, you know, and they can't get through it. And, you know, it's it's really, really tragic. Yeah, that is uh, but tragic. She, but she kept, she kept playing. She kept playing three hours a day, every day, you know, and the father even, you know, um, was admonishing her in letters that she doesn't take long enough walks for health, but instead she practices. <laughs> One would argue that the practice was much better than a medicinal walk. It's probably apocryphal, but I, when in the research I did, I, I pulled this up and it says that um, at one point in a concert, uh, after finishing a piece, he and uh, Wolfgang announces that the piece was written by his sister. And mm -hmm. the piece, this article goes on to say that uh, Leopold, the father, was enraged and ordered Nanerl to never compose music again. Um, I never heard of. Yeah, it's um, it's it seemed very strange in a sense, because if he's well, going to take them all over Europe, uh, uh, you know, and put his daughter up as, as yes, as a child and, you know, um, mm -hmm. a prodigy and that sort of thing and have her entertain, uh, why would he even be ashamed that, you know, Wolfgang is playing something that she wrote? <laughs> I, I don't know about that. Um, I, I, I would love to uh, read about it because I, I never, I, I never found that. If I were to, this is Jody. If I were yeah. to speculate, <laughs> I would say that at the time, education in a woman was not viewed as desirable. Mm -hmm. They were to be educated in certain things, but to go beyond the things that were acceptable, things like adding simple numbers, reading a little bit, knowing how to do, how to run a household, um, knowledge meant that they were. Uh, how do you say this? <laughs> a, thre a threat to some poor male's uh, weak little ego? Yes, yes. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> I've had good training. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, like I said, that just quadruples the tragedy. All right, so let's, let's, um, let's talk about the show, okay? It's, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. So, Sylvia, you saw the photo, and... How did this how did this play germinate in your mind and how did you manage to put this together? Well, because um I you know, for me it was such a important it, it was just such a um such a shock really to to find out that there was a Mozart uh who was a woman um uh, because growing up there's I don't know I heard it from many different sources this stupid uh, ignorant opinion of you know obviously there were women are inferior to men because where are the mozarts where are the shakespeare's from the past right right so i think um, we just answered that question didn't we <laughs> you know and, and and so here was mozart and and i thought oh my god here is mozart this is what they're talking about and why don't we know? Why do we not know about her? So, um, you know, I, I thought somebody should be telling the story. There should be, you know, and, and you know, I, somehow I thought, you know, I realized that maybe if I feel like that, maybe I should attempt to tell the story. <laughs> and, um, you know, it took me a while because I, <clears throat> I'm an actress. I'm a musician. 
Uh, I've written some plays, but not not the full length. Um, I was never theater producer as well, so I had to learn as I went along. You know, trying to find people to help me. I realized. I need to write the play because I have a certain passion for it and perspective. And I've done so much research over the first few years that I that I felt like I I, I could I could base base it on facts. Um, and I've traveled to all the places where she lived and many where she performed. Um, and you know, I started to gather the team, the the director Isaac Byrne, who 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 really helped me um, through improvisation uh, and asking the right questions to 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 write the script, shape the script. Um, and um, I have these two incredible composers, Nathan Davis and Phyllis Chan, who um, who deal with um, you know abstract music, and they, they had this task of pretty much writing music for Nanaro, but in a way that wouldn't be um, mistaken for her music, which we don't have. So they use, you know, they use objects like uh, they would have been in her ear, like teacups and uh, fans, the, the, the sound of a fan, um, and uh, clock chimes, uh, clocks as well, uh, church towers, uh, things like that, um, and harpsichord, uh, clavichords. Um, and... Uh, you know, I met all these people along the way. Uh, Janice Orlandi, who is our period style movement director, who uh, specializes in all the bows and the hand gestures from the times. Um, so as I went along, I built the team um, and I built the production. We have the two incredible designers, um, a Polish designer who designed the dress, Magdalena Dombrowska, and the dress is 18 feet in diameter. Uh, yeah, we need to talk about that dress because that yeah. is, uh, <laughs> I can safely say I've never seen anything like that before in my life. And of course, mm -hmm. the first question I had was, no, not how did it come to be or how did you, you know, decide you needed something like that? My question is, mm -hmm. what does it cost to dry clean that thing uh, <laughs> but sitting up thankfully uh, we haven't done it yet <laughs> for those of you listening in podcast land out there who have not seen their website uh which give us the name of the website please for the www.theothermozart.com okay. okay you should all go see this just to see the size and uh, mm -hmm. the the magnificence of this garment it is yeah. huge <laughs> um, and and both Jody and Sylvia each, uh, I guess, performed the show from within the center of this huge blossom. What's really lovely about it, too, is that I think the size of the dress really communicates the uh, the crushing sort of weight of gender roles at that time. And there are a lot of times in the beginning of the show that we are not inside the dress, where we're allowed to be a little bit more free and we're traveling just as Nanal was traveling. And then there is a moment in the show where you become locked in to the dress. So it functions as a garment, but also as the set piece, as a wearable set, in, in a sense. A wearable set. I mm. like that. I, <laughs> you, don't run across, yeah. you don't run across that phrase too often <laughs> how did you arrive at, uh, at the decision to needing a dress i'm gonna say this again 18 feet wide well um <clears throat> i had um had multiple brain brainstorming sessions with a polish director called anna sroka and uh i'm originally from poland so um I, we 
we talked about you know the period and uh, and the constraints on the woman and on the women and um, you know the beauty of of the of the fashion at the time, but also you know I mean the women at the time with fashion were much larger than men. Uh, with the hair that was piled up incredibly high and the panniers that were sticking out to the sides where, you know, you had to open double doors for the women to walk in. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they were so wide. And uh, and the men were really, uh, you know, the fashion was such that they were, they were small. Um, so, you know, we're looking at, at, at the fashion of the time and, and just the, you know, the overall situation of the time and trying to figure out some abstract way of showing that that <clears throat> would also be very practical uh, for us because um, I always wanted to tour with the show because I you know I really believe uh, that the story should be known because we do not uh, learn about these women in history classes no we don't uh, or music history classes still so <clears throat> you know I always wanted to have the show um, be able to be set up easily quickly and travel you know it packs all into one suitcase under 50 pounds so we can fly with it anywhere and <laughs> and uh, presenters usually ask us you know do we have a truck that comes within this <laughs> suitcase <laughs> and you just hand them the suitcase there you go yes <laughs> so now we have three different dresses and we have four different actresses doing it um yeah a German actress, Samantha Hofer, and a Brazilian actress, Daniela Galli. Um, so there's actually four of us doing this run in New York City uh, this time around. <laughs> Great. Jody, how did you get involved with this? Uh, Sylvia and I were both working uh, in, in the solo show arena, and we, we met through a performance venue um, and started talking about working on this together. And I was... I was very excited to be asked. Um, I typically play women who are somehow breaking out of restraints or are uh, dealing with a, a period of history that's very interesting or not communicated. And I had recently been playing Clove Galilee in a show that I had, uh, I would say, devised from interviews that I did with her about her mother, Ruth Malachek of Mabu Mines. And Ruth had left this trunk after she passed away, filled with many things and said, when I, when I'm gone, this will be for you. And they opened it and Clove wanted to tell me what was inside of it. So it was this beautiful history of the Lower East Side and of growing up there in the seventies with people like Joseph Papp and, um, you know, Philip Glass and <laughs> all of these amazing artists, musicians, um, experimental performers. So I was, I was performing that show in her words um, and telling the story of, of what you do, how you move on when you're uh, when you're sort of giants, you know, your your gurus are no longer um, around, and you you have to step into this large role. So I was performing that. Sylvia and I met, and then this seemed like a great natural step to move into based on that. When you're out there in that dress, doing. Sylvia's play. Who is Nanarol to you? I mean, how do you do you take it in a different direction than Sylvia does? Is Sylvia's Nanarol someone different than yours? I think of it as a container. Um, in the most Chekhovian sense, it's a container that you fill up with you. And Nanarol is she's every woman. Um, you know, a lot of times I think 
when we look at how far we've come now, the only real measure of that is to look at where we've come from. <laughs> and there are a lot of things in the story that, that ring true for me, that ring true for a lot of women. And so, you know, they hit me differently and, and I lift different things occasionally, but as far as the choreography goes and the style, uh, we, we do the same sort of container, the same sort of, um, framework. Okay. Um, Sylvia, you mentioned earlier Janice Orlandi, yes. right? Mm -hmm. um, and her, uh, I'm going to say dramaturgical contributions to the show, including you know, court bows, uh, gesturing, <laughs> all of which were very critical back at the time. Right. Yeah. Um, but you, uh, <laughs> there's also something written here about fan language. Mm, right, right. And... <laughs> Uh, okay, yes, I'm a man, but I mean, that I don't think that excuses me from not knowing what fan language is. <laughs> so, <clears throat> at the time, uh, women had fans with them all the time, and especially at balls, there was the secret language, uh, which wasn't so secret, I guess, but, you know, you could communicate without words across uh, a dance floor, Um Especially to, this was devised for, you know, romance. So there were certain gestures that um, that meant certain things. Um, you know, meet me at this hour, for instance. There were certain, you know, however many, um, uh, like a placement on the fan of your finger. Um, people could tell which hour you meant. <laughs> hmm. um, and, you know, just different flirtatious uh, things we use, you know, we use just, um, uh, we use it for a scene in Munich where Nanro um, comes in and uh, really astonishes people by her costume of an Amazon, which is, she did, uh, which she, she did actually design such a costume for herself. <laughs> and, uh, and she creates this, um, you know, flattering of, um, of who is this? Who is this? You know, and 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 people recognizing uh, this. This is when she uh, hasn't been touring for for a few years already. So um, so we use that as to create the ballroom scene, which uh, which is really effective. Mm -hmm. Nice. How long is the show? Seventy five minutes. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm just wondering because it's it seems like an awful lot you'd have to put into the show to get a good idea of who she is and you've just you've toured it through europe you've taken it to vienna correct uh no actually yeah. uh in two weeks i'm gonna be in vienna for the first time at the mozart house that that place where i first discovered nanaro uh, <laughs> which 10 years ago which i think is a good good play good time frame to be there <laughs> mm, okay but you have taken but we took around we we toured in salzburg at the mozart house the the actual apartment where mozart's lived and where nano played music in that room i performed it uh at her other house where she lived uh, in that village um there is a performance space now in that house which is amazing uh in estonia and in germany in munich um and in london uh i took it for three weeks a year ago which was just steps away from the Buckingham Palace, where the two Mozarts performed, <laughs> uh, and and all around the U.S. Uh, we continue touring with it. So, what's the feedback from the audiences like? I ask because it's a historical play, or I'm mm -hmm. looking at it as an historical play, yep. and you always feel like you're supposed to jot down notes or something like that. But what are the what have the audiences been? asking you because i'm sure there must have been questions after the show they want to know a lot about certain things that we couldn't fit into the 75 minutes 
um, because we really tried to tell the story, uh, the whole life story of Nano. Uh, but of course, there are things we had to uh, omit. So they are very curious to know more of it, <laughs> which is really, you know, why I think there should be a film uh, about nanomotor because the, the interest is huge in what was the story. And the story is fascinating. And the reasons, you know, also why certain things happen or certain decisions were made are fascinating. So they want to ask about exactly why were certain decisions made or what happened here exactly. And, and then, you know, I tell them what I've researched and then there are many options of, of why something happened um, and what are the different possibilities that could have been. And maybe we chose, you know, one rather than another, which, you know, we try to be as truthful to the story and, you know, what I was able to find in the research. But of course, sometimes, we don't know and so we have to yeah. choose uh, a version of of what could have been um yeah. i get asked a lot how do you do the hair <laughs> <laughs> of course you do <laughs> it's it's because remarkable the- hair a, um. <laughs> yes it is <laughs> Yes, it is. It is very tall, and uh, we we have reached the height of Nanaro's hair in that portrait. Actually, we have, which is which was a, a moment of pride for me. Uh, our <laughs> I, I thought the portrait was a mistake. Actually, I thought somebody's was it. I thought the paint spilled or something. I mean, that's a huge hairdo. It is huge. <laughs> And it's, uh, it's designed by Courtney Bednarowski, and uh, we've um, we've perf- she's perfected it so that now we don't use the hairspray, um, toxic hairsprays, but mm. uh, sugar water, sugar and vodka, and it works amazingly. <laughs> sugar and vodka. Yep. <laughs> okay, that's that's going to be my next uh, stage prep. <laughs> so, I'm doing my hair, guys. Don't worry about it. We're fine. What lessons are there for women today? young women especially, coming from the story of Nanerl? Oh, so many. Um, I think it's brilliant to see, first of all, a woman on stage, as I've seen all the other actresses perform this, uh, doing an Olympic feat of performance. I mean, this is really a story about something that was lost to history, a woman who wasn't able to fully achieve the potential she could have. And then you're seeing these women who are performing this thing that has dance movement incorporated, a giant amount of props, uh, a giant amount of text, a giant amount of emotional uh, range, uh, vocal training, costume. The hair itself takes about an hour and a half to two hours to do. I mean, so much preparation. And everyone seems to be doing it so it looks effortless. It's not effortless at all. But to me, that says that there's so much to be achieved, that you can achieve so much um, and that we have to we have to speak up. We have to give voice to our stories and the stories of the women around us. It's important to help other women. It's important to give them an opportunity to speak, especially if you are a person who has a voice and has an opportunity to empower someone else, you know, to share what they, what they are trying to share with the world. That's very important. I think. Well said. Thank you. Uh, Sylvia Milo and Jody Christopherson. Thank you so much for being with us. And, uh, 
please, before we leave, uh, tell us where the show is, how long it's going to run, and uh, how we can find out more information about it, about the show and yourselves. The show is currently running now through September, I'm sorry, through November 13th, um, and that it's also going to come back January 6th through the 9th of 2017. It's at the Players Theater, which is 115 McDougal Street on the third floor. There are uh, three flights of stairs. So, you know, um, that's something to consider um, in New York, in the West Village. Um, tickets are on Ovation Ticks. And you can visit the theothermozart.com for a detailed schedule, as well as a way to purchase tickets. Well, thank you so much for uh, being with us today. And I know the show is going to be amazing, so I wouldn't even think about wishing you good luck, but good luck anyway. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for having us. Thank okay. you. Hey, kids, thanks for listening to On Stage, Off Stage. On Stage, Off Stage is produced monthly, and all of our shows can be found at onstageoffstage.org and also on iTunes. If you like what we do, please recommend us to your friends. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at OnOffStage. And if you are a theater artist with an upcoming project of interest or work in a part of theater that we haven't covered yet, or know of someone else in the theater who'd make some really good chat, please send us a note at info at onstageoffstage.org. Our intro and outro music is Surf Far, Surf Good by the composer Steve Channon. You can hear more of his work on SoundCloud. I'm George Sapio. Thank you once again, and happy theatering to all of you. Yeah.